we're going to we're going to be all over, <clears throat> but we're going to primarily start off out of Ephesians in chapter four and verse thirty-two. And we're looking, as already been noted, we're looking at the subject of forgiveness. That is a massive subject, and there's no way that we can cover it all tonight. Uh, It's probably one of the most massive subjects we've looked at since we started this One Another series, because it's just all throughout the Scripture, and and that we receive so much instruction in it. I'm going to try to answer some questions that come regularly regularly with forgiveness, and in that I'm thankful for uh, teachers that have come before me that have been very helpful on this idea of forgiveness. But let, let us hear God's word, Ephesians four, thirty-two. And Paul is instructing the church, and from chapter 4, there's a clear division Uh, in Ephesians. The first three chapters, Paul has been telling us who we are in Christ, what what the nature of the church is. And chapter 4, he then tells us, now, okay, in light of that, this is how you are to live. And he gets into these admonitions here in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, one thing I want to note about this is he says almost virtually the same thing in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. And so you see this command of forgive one another come up twice um, in Paul's writings. But we're just going to stay here in Ephesians tonight. But this does teach us something about our lives together in the church is that the reality of life lived together is that there will inevitably be some friction that arises between us. Whether it's an annoyance or whether it's a, a sin, there will always be some sort of friction. And the root cause of that is always going to be one thing. What is it going to be? What's going to be the root cause of that friction? Sin. Right? And so... The idea of, of solving relational issues with one another is going to be identifying that sin and, and rooting that out. But as we recognize that, and I'm sure we do recognize that, that there is going to be a friction because none of us have had a perfect relationship with everyone we've ever met. It just doesn't exist. Recognizing that in advance, we must then be ready and quick to forgive. We see that also something about this. Being kind and tender-hearted to one another does not necessarily mean or lead to the idea of forgiveness. Paul separates these things. He says in the same verse, be kind to one another, be tender-hearted. Then he says, forgiving one another. And so, can those be attributes that help us and lend us to forgiving? Yeah, absolutely. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's always going to happen because he calls us to that specifically. And so we see this idea, this command here, that we are to forgive one another. And what does it mean to forgive? Well, the exact word here contains the idea of grace. You have heard the Greek word for grace, charis. Some people uh, are named that even today, and it's just the word grace And that is contained in this word. 
And we want to recognize the idea of grace contains the idea of, or the idea of forgiveness contains the idea of grace. One dictionary, Greek dictionary, says this, to forgive on the basis of one's gracious attitude toward an individual. So it's to forgive on the basis of a gracious attitude towards someone else. Another dictionary, Greek dictionary, says it refers to giving something to someone often in a manner that no reciprocation is in view. And so forgiveness, just at a base level, it's a generous action on behalf of someone else. It's an act of grace. It may not be something necessarily then that they deserve, but it is something as an act of grace towards someone else. As we look at the idea of Forgiveness. A couple passages help us define it. In Luke chapter 7, verse 42, we read this idea. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now that idea of canceling the debt of both is that same phrase there. That forgiveness of a debt. So when we think of Forgiveness, we can think of it in some sense as canceling a debt that someone owed us. One is wrong, the other, and the offended party cancels that wrong that has come to them. It's removed. It's no longer held over them. If you look at the other passage that I mentioned, Colossians, in chapter 3, in verse 13, we read, This, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And so you get this idea here of letting go of something. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against you, then you are then to forgiving each other. You have a complaint against each other, forgive each other, which means that the complaint is let go of. You see that? So in forgiveness, if there is a complaint against one and someone comes to them with their issue, and once forgiveness has been established, it's let go of. That complaint's no longer in the picture now. It's gone. It's not defining your relationship. One way we can define what forgiveness is is by looking at the opposite. Forgiveness is the opposite of retaliation. Forgiveness is the opposite of retaliation. We see in Luke chapter 6, in verse 27 through 31, the Lord Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And so forgiveness would not be retaliative for someone. That would be an opposite thing. And there's a couple ways that we can think about retaliation. There could be passive retaliation, right? 
You can imagine something like this scenario is you passively allow someone to walk into a trap. You allow someone to walk into a situation that is going to be, would be vengeful unless you stop them from doing it. They're unknowingly walking into something. That would be a passive form of retaliation. The opposite of passive would be an active form of retaliation where you put them in the trap. And so we have to remove those ideas that it is not vengeful in any sense of the word. You think of the problem in 1 Corinthians in chapter 6 where they're suing one another and they're taking one another before human um, secular courts. They were being vengeful with one another in that they would sue their brothers, not deal with things within the church and try to come to some sort of uh, reconciliation, but rather they would parade their problems before the world. And so forgiveness is the opposite of retaliation. Forgiveness is the opposite of resentment. Actually, when you don't forgive, what ends up residing in your heart? Resentment, right? Well, look at what Paul says in in Ephesians, in our passage, just the verse before. He says, let all bitterness, that's resentment, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, And so forgiveness is the opposite of resentment. We have to recognize the effects on our our heart and in our life when we don't forgive someone. And he uses this interesting word, bitterness. Now, when you think of bitterness, what do you think of? It's something that you you taste that leaves a, a horrible taste in your mouth. That's how we use bitter, right? You taste something, you say, ah, that's bitter. And so what he's using is this idea of a very sharp and intense resentment residing in one's heart, much like how something with a bad taste lingers, and it just kind of stays there, and you can't get rid of it. And so that's the idea. He uses that metaphorical use of bitterness to talk about resentment. So let me give you a few things to think about. If there is a stirring of our passions when we see that person that supposedly we have forgiven, then forgiveness hasn't taken place. You think about that. If there's a stirring of it. And, and by the way, I, I know, uh, I, I'll just say that I struggle with every single point of this. So, I'm with you if you struggled with this. But it means that forgiveness hasn't taken place and we're actually harboring resentment and it's doing damage to our soul. It's affecting our ability to worship. It's affecting our ability to commune with our God. Another thing is about this idea of resentment. If I'm reflecting on the wrong after forgiveness has been offered then I'm still doing what? Holding on to it, right? And you can think of this, I'll just use myself as an example, you replay in your head how you were offended. 
you think about it all, and oh, I, I should have done this, or I should have done... You're, you're holding on to it, and it's actually consuming you. And that's really not forgiveness. Now it comes with this question. Must I forget when I forgive? Because we oftentimes are told, forgive and forget, right? The thing is, is that we're never commanded in Scripture to forget. Jay Adams compares that idea to this, and I don't know if you are familiar with Jay Adams, but he's the pioneer of, of biblical counseling. He says forgiveness is not electroshock therapy, where you forgive someone and your brain is zapped to where you forget what happened. That doesn't happen to us. And so, Scripture doesn't actually command it that we can forget because we can't wipe clean our memory bank. So how do we understand this idea of forgetting when we forgive? Because I am going to make the argument that actually, in principle, that's good. And we need to practice it. And, and there's some scriptures that we will look at to, to show that. A couple of things about that first. Some sins require even in forgiveness, that boundaries are to be put in place that were not previously there. There are some sins that result in that. And so someone could say, well, that's not forgetting. No, that's being wise. There are some sins that are so extraordinary, we can now no longer act in the same way with this person. Now, you think of a situation of abuse. Um, we, we, you have to put boundaries in place. And there's something else in terms of the eldership or the diaconate or a church leader. There's a difference between restoration to the body and a restoration to an office. And do you recognize the difference between that? A restoration to the body is this person's repentant, they, they, they have been forgiven, we're welcoming them back. But that doesn't mean they're, 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 there's a restoration to their position. Is that where uh, Matthew 8 comes in? Where if you can't resolve something, then, then you take it to the church? Matthew 18, we're going to go there. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're going to go there. Yeah, but there are certain things that uh, a person can disqualify themselves from a position. They are not going to be in a position of that any longer, though we have forgiven them. We're just following God's word at that point that no, you can't, you can't ever do that again. I don't need to give you examples. You can think of those on your own. Another thing is this, is a track record of continual sin doesn't mean in forgiveness I lose sight of wise handling of people. So, where there's a, a track record of sin, am I to continually forgive them? Yeah, Jesus pretty much makes that very clear. I'm to forgive them, even if it's seven times in one day. I'm to forgive them. So, we, but, um, this idea of forgiveness doesn't mean I now am dealing with them in the same way. And I'm dealing with this, and I'm thinking of this differently than rather than the previous situation, which would have been egregious sin. Uh, these are, say, sins that, that 
ebb away at trust, or these are sins that, that um, are of maybe a divisive nature. You handle them differently, and you think of it like this. Think of the example of John, Mark, and Paul. Paul and Barnabas and John Mark are out on a missionary journey. And as the journey starts to get difficult, John Mark starts to miss Mama's cooking. And he says, I want to go home because I'm missing that cooking. And he deserts Paul. He deserts Barnabas. And they get back. Paul's still pretty heated about this because likely Paul had suffered some diseases, maybe malaria on that trip that could have maybe permanently disfigured him. That was a rough journey on that trip. So when he gets back, he certainly sees John Mark as a brother and certainly still loves John Mark. But when they go to, on their next missionary journey and Barnabas says, hey, let's take John Mark, Paul says, nope. They have a sharp disagreement. Why? Well, because he left them hanging. It's kind of like this, as you think of the person climbing down the well, there's someone holding the rope, and that person that lets go of the rope, you're not going to let them hold the rope for you next time. And that's what John Mark did. But the beauty of what happens with John Mark is this, is that when Paul is awaiting his trial that will likely end up in his execution, his last will and testament, what does Paul say about John Mark? He says in 2 Timothy 4.11, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So here's a guy who deserted him. Paul was upset about it. We could look at why, who was right, Barnabas or Paul. I think the text kind of leans towards Paul, but I think there's a case there for Barnabas too. Either way, what do we see? is that Mark's actually restored into a brotherly fellowship with Paul. And beyond that, he is brought back into an essential and vital aspect of Paul's ministry. Isn't it he who wrote the book of Mark? Yeah. Yeah, he writes a gospel account. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, he, he writes a gospel account probably off of his travels with Peter. It's a tremendous testimony of God's restorative power and the picture of forgiveness that you see with Paul and this guy that he was very upset with. I mean, you have this great missionary duo with Barnabas and Paul, and it breaks up over John Mark. Very sad situation. There's something in this, though. This is dealing with that idea of forgive and forget. In these situations that we've looked at, we see that you're not forgetting, right? There, there wasn't a forgetting. There was a change in some sense in how that person would be dealt with. But I want to I show us this. In forgiveness, we have to actually move past the offense that took place in the past. And so in, in terms of forgetting, you're not going to forget it. A lot of people like to reference that idea of forgive and forget off of this passage in Isaiah in 43 in verse 25. 
I, I am he who blots out, blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Is it possible for God to forget something? No, God cannot forget something. He is omniscient. So he doesn't forget, but when he says, I remember it no more, it's the picture of this, is God is no longer bringing that up. It's been, it's been gone. It's not that God forgets, because it doesn't say that. He says he remembers it no more. He no longer brings it to, to mind. And so that's the model for us, is that in forgiveness, I can't actually forget what's happened. But I can no longer bring it up in my mind. I can no longer bring it up in the conversation. I can no longer bring it up as a wedge between uh, the, the offending party and myself. I remember it no more. So a better way to look at this is in forgiveness is forgive and remember it no more. And I think that's a great way to do it. Here's a question that comes up. What if they don't ask for forgiveness? Am I obligated to to forgive? You've probably thought about that before. Well, what we have to understand is forgiveness is essentially tied to reconciliation. Right? It takes two to reconcile. And Jay Adams says this, In reconciliation, enmity and alienation are replaced by peace and fellowship. That to, in order for that to take place, you have to have two parties that agree to those terms. That we're going to get past this, we're going to have forgiveness, and that we're going to move on. So in order for reconciliation to take place, it takes two willing parties. So, when we look at reconciliation, the old state of the relationship has actually been resolved and has entered into a new state. In reconciliation with a brother, what you will oftentimes find is the relationship on the other side of that reconciliation is stronger. Not not always, but it oftentimes is. It becomes a, a better one. So, what if they don't ask for forgiveness? I can't actually give a transacted forgiveness with them. I can't. They haven't asked me for forgiveness. I can't say, yes, I forgive you. But that doesn't mean I can't have an attitude of forgiveness with that person. Note the difference. If someone comes to me and says, I apologize for what I did, I can say, I forgive you. Let's move on past this. There's a transaction that takes place. That's transactional forgiveness. That takes two parties that are agreed and willing to reconcile. But if there is not, if one party is not willing to go there, I can't actually make that transaction of forgiveness with them. And if I go to them and say, hey, I, I forgive you, I don't need your forgiveness. There was no transaction that took place. And so transactional forgiveness takes two people, but an attitude of forgiveness can take place. 
And I think that that's what we want to get to. And we go back to those ideas that we saw of resentment, of bitterness, is that we don't, we, we just aren't to carry those things in our hearts. Paul makes that very clear. So, has there been a transaction of forgiveness? Maybe not. But I'm not going to carry bitterness in my heart towards them because God's Word tells me not to. So, reconciliation, though, and this idea of reconciliation, is a two-party responsibility. And I, I, I want to see, this, this should be relationship 101 in the church. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, So if, and this is verse 23, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, Now, this is in the context of worship. If I think someone is offended by me, are they supposed to confront me? Yes, if I've sinned. But if they don't, I think I've offended someone else, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to go to them. Now, here's why I say it's a two-party process, because of the, the passage that was brought up earlier is in Matthew chapter 18. If your brother sins against you, what are you to do? You're to go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So in other words, if I've offended someone, it's my responsibility to go to them. And, and God's conscience, or God's law written on upon our heart and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives will bear down on our conscience telling us, I, I, might have, I might have offended someone. I need to go and check and see if I have. And if it's a blatant sin, then we know we've done it. But if I don't do that because I'm obstinate and recalcitrant towards them and whatever I have done, it's their duty to come to me and say, you have offended me. You have sinned against me in this way. So reconciliation is a two-party process. And so, the idea of someone not asking for forgiveness doesn't alleviate the responsibility to get the process moving in that direction so we can. So for instance... Can I transactionally forgive someone if they haven't asked for forgiveness? No, but there is a process that Jesus gives us to get that going so that we can reach that point where they have said, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And I say, yes, I do forgive you. And so there's a process that we are given. And this process, God actually uses this Often, and the most famous example of that is with David in 2 Samuel, in chapter 12. And we see in verse 7, Nathan confronts David the king and he says, You are the man. He confronts him. Now, David was going on as if nothing had happened. His heart, I'm sure God was dealing with him in his heart. 
And so Nathan confronts him, and, and look, what, look what happens, the beauty of what happens when he is confronted. David said, this is verse 13 to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And look what happens as a result of that. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. So he's confronted with his sin. And David is able to go to the Lord, claiming his guilt before the Lord. And the Lord forgives him and puts it out of his memory. We are given a picture there of repentance and forgiveness. So, when we are confronted, we need to recognize in sin, uh, if we are being confronted or we are confronting, recognizing in sin against another person or sin against, against ourselves is first and foremost, as we look at this idea of when we sin against someone else, it's first and foremost against God. So if I offend you, first of all, I have offended God. Because God's the innocent party. None of us are innocent. So we have to recognize that. And starting there actually helps alleviate the idea of personal offense and makes it easier for us to forgive. If we recognize, I'm not perfect Maybe I did something that was innocently enough that caused them to react that way or something like that. Really, actually, they sinned against God. They recognized that. And uh, it wasn't against me. It was, it was against God. Yeah, I need to, that makes it easier to, to forgive when you think of it like that. Speaking from personal experience, if you think you've offended somebody, it's easy to say, well, maybe I'll do it later. Don't put it off. There is, there is consequences within your heart that take place if you begin to put it off. Don't do that. Absolutely. If, you, if you're um, quick and don't put it off, nine times out of ten, when you go to that person, your relationship is going to be better for it. And like I said, that in a few instances, that's from personal experience. So believe me, the Word of God is true. Amen to you that. You see it lived. You really can. Yeah, amen. Thanks for sharing that. And in the context of Matthew 5, forgiveness is actually to take a priority of you worshiping. So yeah, we're not to, to take it off. Look what David says in Psalm 51.4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You know what has oftentimes bothered me about that is I'm pretty sure David sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah and Uriah's parents, Bathsheba's parents. He sinned against the nation of Israel. But here, God's word tells us, against you only I sin. And here's why. is because only you, God, are blameless in your judgment. That's what he says. That you would be blameless in your judgment. You would be justified in your words. We're never blameless. 
We're never blameless. Now, there's something here that I want to say about apology and forgiveness. And I, I, actually, I actually counsel people this way, and this is counter to how I see a lot of people act. I am not obligated to um, apologize when I haven't done anything. I'm not required to apologize at the expense of truth. Does that make sense? If someone said, you need to apologize for murdering that person, I'm giving you an extreme example to make my point, but I didn't murder that person, I don't have to apologize for that because I didn't do it. I have seen so many times that a person will offer an apology to appease someone. Is that a love for truth? No. It actually, in many ways, can enable the other person to have some sort of control over them and require it. This is very common in uh, marital relationships where someone will apologize just to appease. If you love the truth, we have to follow what God's Word says, which is in Ephesians 4.15, speak truth in love. And so, I'm not going to embrace a lie to appease someone. Because we are to be people of truth. That's also not justice. That's an injustice. As soon as an accusation is made between two people, you know this for sure. You have a victim. Think about that. When someone makes an accusation against another person, there is in fact now a victim. It can be the one that is making the accusation, or it can be the one that is accused, but there is a victim. And so, to require forgiveness from someone that has not done anything wrong is actually to create someone that now is a victim of an injustice. And so, look, don't apologize for something you're not guilty of. Don't do that in your relationships. It doesn't help your relationships. It actually harms them and creates a toxic environment in the relationship that's no longer based upon truth, but based upon lies. And that can go out of control. And I will tell you that I have seen that out of control. Also, this idea of forgiveness is not forsaking what is legally mine to allow others to take or steal or come over and take what is mine. God has given us the right to own things. That's why there's a commandment, thou shalt not steal. But, looking at this idea of forgiveness, if you are one that will confront someone when sin is needed to be confronted, that's good. We should do that. We should be ready to do that. But for the sake of love, let us not get so easily offended that every annoyance that comes up or every little friction that comes up requires a formal apology so you can grant forgiveness. Paul or Peter writes this. He says, love covers a multitude of sins. 
You know, consider this. You get a response from someone and you didn't like their tone or whatever and you assume automatically that they're being offensive to you. Don't go there. Let love overrule that. You know, yesterday I was walking and I had my headphones on and I was listening to uh, a, a lecture in theology, which is really exciting, I know. And so I had my, my thinking face on, which is this, and, uh, and I'm listening, I'm just walking along with my head down and I'm on, on the sidewalk over in the community here. And there's cars going by me and someone honks at me and I look up and I'm processing as I'm looking up like this at that person. And then after they have passed me, I realize, oh, that's him. Now, just think about how that scenario could play out. And Rob was scowling at me yesterday. It was really rude of him. I actually just had my headphones in, was listening to something, was focused, and I didn't have any idea who you were until afterwards, and so I'm trying to look at who you were. You could see how that could be mistaken. But you could play that out in conversations. You could play that out. Someone could be really busy. Someone could be having a bad day. Has anyone ever had a bad day? Where you don't necessarily respond quite as graciously as you, as you should have? Like, we need to not assume the worst of people. This takes wisdom, it takes discernment, it takes grace. And one thing that we can consider is this, is will my confrontation be edifying, or is it just simply that I was annoyed? Has a real offense been committed? And if a real offense hasn't been committed, then I, I just let, let it go. Let it go. Don't be so easily offended, I guess, is what the point is. Another thing is, is this, is sometimes people say, well, what if I don't really feel the forgiveness? That is hypocritical. And I have, I have heard that over and over again. And let me just tell you this. Forgiveness is not a feeling. You can't feel forgiveness. I don't care what Carl Rogers and modern psychology is. It's not a feeling. It's something granted. Okay, so we can't say, I don't feel like forgiving this person. That's not something your body actually feels. A feeling is something that is tangible. It is something granted. Notice what Jesus says. He says in Luke chapter 17, verse 3, pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. He doesn't say anything about whether you feel it. And he goes on to say in this, as we see, and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The other thing is, is do I have to offer forgiveness if they haven't shown fruits of repentance? Jesus says no. They didn't show any fruits of repentance. Notice what the text says saying, I repent. There's no time to show fruits of repentance at that point. You're still obligated to forgive them. Just because they say, I repented, does that mean they repented? No. But they ask for forgiveness after you have rebuked them. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to give it to them. How many times? Well, Jesus says seven times in a day, which is 
using hyperbole, literal hyperbole, to say, you just keep forgiving them. Now again, this kind of we, we have to go back to what we previously said. In forgiveness, we, we, we don't forget things, and it can be a change in the relationship. But we are still required to forgive them. Now the manner of forgiveness is also seen in Ephesians 4.32. And it is this, as God in Christ forgave you. So the first thing I want to note is this. It assumes you have been forgiven by God in Christ. And so if you have been forgiven by God in Christ, that is what is assumed here. It is upon your shoulders as a responsibility to offer forgiveness. And the example is in Christ, in that this is, we have been forgiven in Christ to this point, that past, present, and future sins are forgiven completely. They've been removed, and a new status before God has actually emerged. You see this so beautifully written in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5 and verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The idea of forgiveness is directly tied to our message of the gospel, isn't it? And as we think about how we have been forgiven in Christ, well, Ephesians chapter 1 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, and through the sacrifice of his son. Charles Hodge on this passage says, God's forgiveness towards us is free. It precedes even our repentance and is the cause of it. Another commentator, John 80, says this, that pardon is full and free and irreversible. All sin forgiven, forgiven not because we deserve it, forgiven every day of our lives, and when once forgiven, never again to rise up and condemn us. If you are in Christ tonight, you are no longer under condemnation, but your sins have been covered by the blood of Christ. And our example of forgiveness is that very example, is the one that we have. Let me ask you, when we struggle with forgiveness, we have to ask this question, we have to look ourselves in the mirror and say, do I have a higher ethical standard than God? Because that's what we would have to assume. Are we ourselves more holy than God, where the offense against us is greater than our offense against God? We must ask those questions. Now, a couple points of application just for us to maybe meditate on. Not forgiving is to live with resentment, as we mentioned. Resentment is poison. It affects our attitudes towards the person with whom we are upset, but eventually it will spread to those associated with that person. It will sour relationships beyond the offending party. As we already mentioned, not forgiving affects our ability to properly worship. So often you see this idea of sin in relationships is what hinders our prayer life. 
and offender, uh, it, it hinders our ability to commune with God. That's why there's such a great stress on forgiveness as a greater priority than worship. And very practically speaking, be humble when apologizing. Be humble when apologizing. Be humble, patient, and gracious when expecting one. Forgiving one another and an attitudinal forgiveness is a means we have to see to preserving church unity. We pray for church unity. And we ask God, please, keep our unity here in this church. Well, he gives us some instructions how to do that. He says, you want to keep unity? Well, here's how you do it. It's a means of that. Forgiving is also a means to joy and peace. You know, oftentimes we think of joy and biblical joy, that it's, uh, it's regardless of circumstances. And on one hand, that's true. But then we also see the Apostle Paul says these important words, complete my joy. And that's relationships with one another. Can contribute to the joy we have in Christ. And we need to be willing to forgive even when our experience teaches us that there will be no change. And that's the hardest one. Because here's why. We must always hold out hope knowing that God's grace is bigger than our sinfulness. We must never give up hope. The power of the gospel is unto salvation. And so, we never give up hope and those ideas, this person will never change and I keep forgiving them. Well, Jesus says, keep forgiving them. And it could be that your forgiveness is that means of change in that person's life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you that we are forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ and by His blood we are reconciled. We thank you that His blood covers us. It's His righteousness that is imputed to us as if it was our own. We are entirely dependent upon your grace in all that we do. We are dependent upon your grace in even being able to forgive one another or to go to someone and ask for their forgiveness. It's by your grace that we do that. And so we pray that your grace would be rich in our lives and in our hearts. I pray that we would never lose hope in the power of your gospel and the work of your Holy Spirit in reconciliation. May we be a people of reconciliation always. As we depart from here, we pray that you would be preparing our hearts to gather again for worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.